and invite you to be amongst us. And we be conscious of your presence as our teacher. And as we open up your word, I pray that um, we would be humble and submit to your voice and your teaching for us this morning. And Lord, just like any time, we always come into a worship service um, with concerns, with worries, with burdens. And so help us, Lord, to just bring it before you and receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I first uh, began talking about the kingdom of God, and it's been, I know, a couple months now, but I actually started with a story that you know well, the story of Cleopas, and likely his wife, we're not quite sure. And they were traveling home back to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And they had long faces. Ever had days like that? A long face, discouraged, because Jesus was crucified. And they had hope that Jesus would be the one to save Israel. Now, it's hard for us to relate to Cleopas because we're not really part of the world, their world. But they were Jewish people. And like most Jews, they had a dream that God would send a king to end all evil and eradicate their enemies, destroy all their political enemies that kept them captive, and usher in a new kingdom. That was their dream. And so when Jesus came, they were moved by what Jesus said, his powerful, authoritative words, these incredible miracles, even raising people from the dead. Who's heard of this before? And so they put all their money, so to speak, on Jesus. At least some of them did. He is the one, they thought. We know Cleopas did. But now he is dead, and their dream of God's kingdom dies with it. So it seems. So let me use a sports analogy to to maybe get into the emotion of it a bit. So those in the hockey world know that it's probably been over 30 years or something like that, somewhere about 30 years since a Canadian-based team has won the Stanley Cup. Does anyone know that data? Henry knows that. Yeah. So um, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a pastor's gathering. We meet here once in a while. And Pastor Wes, he comes in with his coffee mug, and it's got a Habs Montreal Canadian sticker on it. Plus, he comes in with a Montreal Canadiens ball cap. So you kind of know who he roots for, right? You know. So he sits there and says, the Canadians were the last Canadian team to win the Stanley Cup. And he'd be right. You know, he's prouder than proud, right? So as the playoffs begin, I don't know when it's going to begin, sometime soon, nearing the end of the regular season, we know, I think, that there are three Canadian teams that have made the playoffs. Calgary Flames, got to mention them right at the top. Toronto Maple Leafs, boo, no. And 
Yeah, I've been to others. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We'll mention them too. So they're in there. Okay. Um, let's just say, okay, to cheer you up a bit, the Edmonton Oilers make it all the way to the final. Wouldn't that be a great day, right? Well, for you anyway. So, right? Great day for the Edmonton Oilers fans. And you're excited. Who wouldn't be? So the dream of finally a Canadian team winning the Stanley Cup would just be awesome. It'd just be in their grasp. One more, one more playoff series to go. But then you wake up the next morning and you hear the most horrific news ever. The plane that carries the Oilers crashes and everyone dies. Sorry. It's just a story. Yeah. Right? So I'm just trying to you know, help you understand the pain of a die dream, right? Pain of a die dream. This is how many people felt. The dream of a kingdom dies. This devastated couple walks home, long faces, dejected, and they're joined by a man who is walking in the same direction. And they don't recognize him. And of course, we know that this is the risen Jesus. As they got talking with Jesus, they explained the reason for their long faces. It's such a cool story. And here he is, Jesus the resurrected Jesus, talking with them. And Jesus just goes along with it, listening to their sorry story. He's crucified, his body's missing from the grave. I mean, it's like a horror story for them. Not only is their hero dead, but someone has stolen his body, sabotaged his body, maybe. It's just a horrific story for them. But then Jesus says to them this. Sorry, we have no Wi-Fi in here, so there's no PowerPoint or anything fancy, so you're going to have to actually listen to me today. <laughs> It says this, how, Jesus says this, How foolish are you, you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, which is another name for the king, anointed one, have to suffer these things and enter, and then enter his glory? And then it says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then they invite Jesus into their home. Jesus breaks bread with them in their home, which we're going to do this morning after the sermon. And suddenly their eyes are open and they finally recognize, God, that's Jesus. And as soon as they recognize Jesus, Jesus just disappears from their presence. He has a new resurrected body. He can just go to different places, just like that. Even though it's a true, real resurrection, real body. But they are absolutely pumped. Something goes, this is the aha moment in their lives. And they returned to Jerusalem the very same day. And they said to everyone when they got to Jerusalem, It is true, we have seen the risen Lord. He has appeared before us. 
And then everything just spreads like wildfire. And then the church is born. So this aha moment is what I want to focus on today. When Jesus appeared to them as the resurrected Christ or the resurrected King, Jesus was helping them to understand that everything they know about in their scriptures, which is our Old Testament, finds its full meaning in Jesus. Right? Everything points to Jesus. All the promises of the Old Testament, all the promises of God's kingdom found in the Old Testament from their scriptures, all points to Jesus. Now our New Testament expresses it in different ways. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Of course, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. I mean, that's quite the statement. The God who created this universe is God's Son, now appointed the heir of all things. He speaks to us now through him. And then 2 Corinthians 1.20, For no matter how many promises God has made, and he has made promises, they are yes in Christ, in this Jesus Christ. And so Jesus himself is the key that unlocks the promises of the Old Testament, God's kingdom promises. This is what Jesus declares as the good news. And so, Mark chapter 1, 14 to 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. And from that day on, Jesus calls people to be his followers. You can follow me. Because everything about the promises made before are now revealed in Jesus. So the kingdom of God from the Old Testament can be expressed basically in three, three ways. So I'm, I'm, I may be oversimplifying it, but I think it's kind of handy. Okay? So God's kingdom can be expressed in three ways. God's people, God's place or home, and God's reign. Okay, three things. God's people, God's place or home, and God's reign. And I just want to show you how Jesus fulfills each of these ways, the promises made in the Old Testament. So first of all, Jesus is God's people. Jesus is God's people. In any kingdom, you need a people, right? It's just logical. The kingdom is a community. And so God made Adam and Eve. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. And then later on in Israel's history, God's people are descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob as well. And God's people are the true faithful remnant of Israel. But now in the gospel of Jesus, 
The people of God is Jesus Christ. Now, how does that make any sense? The people of God is Jesus Christ. So, two things here. First of all, Jesus is the true Adam. Or, you could say, he is the last Adam. So, in the Gospels, Jesus overcomes the temptation in the wilderness. Whereas, Adam failed in the garden, Israel failed in the wilderness, but Jesus overcomes all of that. Jesus is baptized, but it identifies with the human race, Adam and his human race. Luke 3.21 says, when all people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Even though sinless, he identifies with people. And to make things abundantly clear, Luke follows with Jesus' genealogy. And what do you find in that genealogy? It begins with Jesus, goes to his earthly father, Joseph, and then you read all the way down the line, and it goes to Adam, right? This is Jesus' ancestry. In other words, he is one of us. Now, we emphasize Jesus' death and resurrection quite a bit, and rightly so. But let's not forget that Jesus was a human being living on earth, doing a workaday job. He was a carpenter. Actually, I like to say it's probably more accurate to say he was a construction worker, actually, right? Because he worked with stone as well, not just wood. He was a construction worker. Can you you picture that? Jesus is a construction worker. Living in the ups and downs of our life, just like our life. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then 1 Corinthians 15.44-45 says, If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Romans 5.19, And just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So in other words, as the last Adam, Jesus is the truly human one. By this we mean Jesus, whom God sent to earth, is the only perfect, obedient obedient human being that the rest of us were not. He is the perfect human being. He is the last Adam. He is the true Adam, the true perfect human being. Now, another way of talking about Jesus as God's people is that Jesus is actually the true Israel. Okay? In Matthew, we learn that Joseph and Mary took Jesus into Egypt to escape Herod. Matthew comments, So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Uh, speaking from Hosea, 
Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we know that Israel became a nation in Egypt, their history. And they were brought out of Egypt. And one thing that, that you should know is that God often referred to the nation of Israel as his son. Interesting, eh? His son. But now Matthew is identifying Jesus with Israel. Jesus, too, is called out of Egypt as God's son. And he moves back into Palestine, into Nazareth. And he, too, was tempted in the wilderness, but did not fail. Then Jesus begins a brand new Israel by selecting 12 disciples. Basically, it's a symbolic number representing the 12 tribes of Israel, But we must realize that this new Israel is not a political nation. It's not a political Israel. The new Israel are those who follow Jesus, right? So again, God's people is absolutely connected with Jesus. God's true people are not necessarily physical descendants of Abraham at all. They can be, and we hope so. But they're spiritual descendants of Jesus. That's why the new people of God are people made up of all people of all nations through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26, So Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Then a few verses down from there, verse 28, the more famous verse, it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. So God's people are always connected to Jesus. Jesus is God's people. So God's people... You could call them the new Israel. We call them also the church. We are the church, the new Israel. We are those who trust in the resurrected Jesus. Now speaking primarily to a Galatian, sorry, a Gentile audience, uh, Peter says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now, notice how Peter uses vocabulary that was used for the old Israel, right? That's Old Testament, old Israel language, right? You are the priesthood, you are the nation. But now he applies it to the church who are mostly, and Peter, he's talking to mostly a Gentile church. Now, why? Because he imagines the church to be like a new Israel, circumcised not physically, but through the Holy Spirit in their lives, right? So a radical shift has taken place. Those who are in Jesus are God's people. Jesus is God's people. Those who are in Jesus are God's people. These are the true kingdom people of God. Now secondly, Jesus is God's place or home. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and an expansive garden for his people, for Adam and Eve 
to live with God. And they did, right? They lived in this perfect harmony. God created, in other words, a place for them, a home for them. This is God's kingdom. A kingdom where he could dwell with his creation and enjoy it, to live in peace, to have his joy and have his love, to have a union with God. But of course we know that they disobeyed God in his creation. And then everything kind of fell apart. But God always wanted to restore his creation. After Israel was rescued out of Egypt, he instructed God's people to build a tabernacle. And uh, I've said this before, but basically the tabernacle was like a little miniature garden. It was like a little miniature heaven and earth. Okay? Even the lamp within this tabernacle was shaped like a tree to remind us of the garden. And so God drew near to Israel while living in the midst of this tabernacle. And then later, of course, it turned into a more permanent tabernacle. Now they call the temple. But in the tragic story of Israel, even this temple is destroyed. And so everyone wonders, what's happened to our God? It's even rebuilt years later. And then another time by King Herod, but it was never the same. But we have to remember that the temple was merely a shadow of what we receive in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true temple, a place where we can enter God's presence through his grace. And so John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The point is, Jesus is the true temple. God's place, God's promised land, God's home is found in Jesus Christ. And then you leave the future up to him, right? We're not going to talk about the future, but the future is absolutely glorious. But my focus here is simply on Jesus. Jesus is your home. So when Jesus declared cleared uh, cleared the temple that Herod built that one day. His enemies were ticked off and they challenged Jesus to prove his authority. Jesus replied, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They thought Jesus was talking about the physical temple, so they were really ticked off by that. But he was, of course, talking about himself and his own body. Now, the actual temple that Herod built was destroyed some years later, about 40 years later. But if you want to go to the place where God is, you don't go to a building. You go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. Jesus is God's dwelling among us. So this is where God's people and God's place come together. We know that Jesus ascended into heaven and he reigns from the heavens as our God and King. God's temple is not a holy building, but a holy people. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul reminds the church that the Holy Spirit lives within us. 
And he says this, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you receive from God. That is why he instructs the church to honor God with their bodies and through their bodies. It's quite the statement. A profound statement. Speaks about the sacredness of your life and your body because as a Christian, God dwells with you. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit, as we know, came down upon God's people just as the prophets prophesied, birthing the new church in Acts chapter 2 and forward. So God has his dwelling place within the Christian community, empowering us to be healthy, to be a growing humanity on earth, being a light to the world. But the entire point is, through our faith in Jesus Christ alone, God's dwelling place is now in us and with us through the Spirit of Christ. Major backup this morning. Yeah. Finally and thirdly, Jesus is our King. So, you have a people, you have a place, and now you have a King. Now you have a kingdom. And He reigns the whole universe. Jesus is that king. So last weekend, Easter weekend, we celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Cleopas did not quite understand that Jesus was the dying and resurrected king. He didn't quite get that yet. He was blocked by the fact that no one in his world would imagine a king would die. A dead king is a dead king. Right? It's just like a no-go for him. In his brain, it does not compute. Dead king, it's over. Jesus looked weak and powerless. They even mocked Jesus. He can't even save himself as he hung from the cross. But of course... We know that in that moment when Jesus died, it was his greatest victory. He forgave sins. He defeats sin, death, and Satan. It's now a given that Satan is like on a noose, and one day he will be no more. Can you imagine that? One day death will be no more. One day, sin will be no more. That's the kind of king we have. It's all found in Jesus. And he sets his people free for those who trust him. Isn't that great news? Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. That's all of us. Sin kills us. But with our faith in Christ, He resurrects us. We follow the trajectory of Jesus' death and life when we trust him. So on the third day, he is raised to life, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns as King, as Savior and Lord. 
And then God promised that the Messiah would come and to be a descendant of King David. But just, Jesus was not just a human son of David. Of course he was a descendant. He wasn't just a human son. He was also the son of God. We become God's people through faith, through surrender, by trusting in Jesus as your king. Through faith in Jesus, we find our true home. And that true home, of course, is going to further develop when Jesus comes again, when he presents the new heavens and the new earth, which is going to be an awesome day. I can't wait, right? In Jesus, we find our new home. But at the same time, Jesus says to his disciples, now you are my friends. That's what a home is, right? A home is family. A home is intimacy. A home is relationship. A home is love. And so Jesus is talking about these really big things, that he's the king. And yet, incredibly, he says to his disciples, and if you're his disciple, if you follow him, he says, you are my friends. I should just blow your socks off. God comes to dwell with us and within us through the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus died and resurrected as God's perfect son, He became our sovereign God, gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can be with Christ in friendship with him. So this is kind of where you go, all right, that's really nice information, Pastor Dan. But you have to cross the tracks and ask yourself, what does this really mean for me? What does this really mean for you? Right? Because this is where we get tripped up. We hear the information, but what Jesus is after is transformation. Hear the difference? Information must turn to transformation. What does Jesus do after he announces the kingdom of God is near? Repent and believe, and then he says, follow me. Follow me. Be friends with Jesus, just as his disciples spent time with Jesus, and to become like him, so that we become a new life-giving humanity to the world. That's God's desire. And so when we follow Jesus, we become God's kingdom on earth. That's why we have the Lord's Prayer, right? What are we praying? We're praying, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done through my life on this earth. But it's got to be Jesus working through us as his church, his new humanity, his new Israel. It isn't about us. It's about Christ. It's about his spirit working through us, the church. You know, 
when you hear the words, God's called you to be a life-giving humanity to the world, um, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Okay? But if our life is centered on Jesus, his death and resurrection, you need to understand that you are not alone. Long ago, the prophet Ezekiel said these words, I give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And that was absolutely fulfilled. After Jesus left this earth, he sent his spirit into each person who surrenders their life to Jesus. And just as Jesus died, we died to our old life. But like Jesus, we resurrect to a new life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we approach Jesus in prayer, um, if we're honest, we come with many hesitations. Right? At least I do. We come with hesitations. Now, why is that? Growing in intimacy with God will do this. And we want to, you know, we often fight even being with God because we have a lot of emotions going on. Okay? We have a lot of emotions happening. You know, your heart has beat, I don't know how many millions of times since you were born, and it was usually beating, you know, fear, anxiety, you know, desires, Uh, Anger, maybe. Bitterness, maybe. Frustration. Joys, too. But maybe envy. Maybe pride. Lots of insecurity. And lust. So it's no shock that when you learn to bow your spirit before God, you come with hesitations. Because you just sense, man, I don't feel adequate for this job. To be called by him. And guess what? God knows this. The Spirit of God knows this. So think of prayer as this gift. Because the whole point of God being your king and your home and God's people is to bring you into relationship with him and to grow into this relationship through the Holy Spirit. And now when you bring all of your emotions, whatever it might be, bitterness or anger or frustration or worry, you know, your heart through the Holy Spirit beats in God's loving presence. And that's the world, that's a world of a difference, right? There is safety when you come into God's presence. So Ezekiel was talking about a new heart, but a change of heart. And the possibilities are all there because God has given you a new heart through the Holy Spirit. But he is asking you to be changed from the very core and root of your being. Our struggles are often is that we think that outward performance is the way it's supposed to be. Right? So we do the religious things, which are all good things, by the way. Like going to church. Okay? But... Ezekiel, Jesus is talking about 
true heart change from the depths of your being where you surrender to the disarming love of Jesus. And in prayer, you simply ask him, Lord, will you change me? Right? Will you change me? Change so that we long for a deep friendship with God, with Jesus. And when we learn to have that posture, then real change happens little by little. It will. I promise. It happens. Now let me leave you with two images. The first one you know well. That is the vine and the branch, right? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, as I am in you, you will bear much fruit. I mean, isn't that awesome? He's saying it. If you're connected to me, you will bear fruit in your life, right? So the focus is always on Jesus. And then he says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, that's such a profound statement, right? It speaks of the fact that we can't do this Christian life apart from Jesus. You just can't. Everyone knows that a branch can't live separate from the main vine or it's going to die, right? That's the next verses in those verses, right? You'll just be a shriveled up branch that's picked up and thrown away. You know what God loves? He loves those who humbly admit this, who humbly come before God. Because when you humbly come before God, then this is what he loves to do. He loves to pour his life into you. That's what he loves. If we're proud, then you stop the progress. If you're bitter, you block the Holy Spirit from entering into your life to do his work. But when you're humble, he can pour into your life and he knows that you're going to soak it up to the last drop and you're going to hunger after him and you're going to desire after him and you're going to grow from the inside out. Branches who remain proud fail to desire Jesus and they don't produce real fruit. You could fake it, Right? But you really aren't producing fruit. Humble, teachable, acknowledging Jesus as your king, surrendering yourself to the Holy Spirit is the key to your growth. So, one more image, then we'll be done, and then we'll do communion. Uh, Does anyone have a Brita filter? You know what a Brita filter is, right? Okay. Brita filters are in our church fridge, so I use them practically every day that I'm here because I like drinking filtered water, right? I don't like the taste of chlorine. And I want you to picture the life of prayer with Jesus like tap water going through a Brita filter. As you come to the Lord in prayer, 
You come to him with all of who you are. Remember I talked about all those emotions, right? Lust, pride, insecurity, blah, 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 okay? Those are your impurities. We all have impurities, right? Imperfect motives. We have fear, we have pride. We have lust, we have insecurity. And God is in the business of purifying you, which is awesome, right? It's a privilege, But as you bring all yourself to Jesus, he helps you filter out all those impurities of your life so that what comes out on the other side is clean water or growing fruit. I like the image of a breeder filter. It helps me. Lord, you're helping me filter out wrong motives, wrong spirit, And he brings new joy into your life. He brings new character into your life. So when you bring yourself to God with humility and surrender, the Holy Spirit speaks quietly into your soul. That, I believe, is God's main way. The Holy Spirit likes to speak quietly. And I kind of wondered about that. Like, why does... does God normally used the gentle, quiet voice. I think it's because he wants you to be quiet before him and to be humble before him. And when you do, he may reveal to you an area of your life that needs to change. That's why your quiet time is absolutely important. And he may reveal to you an old attitude that must be put to death. So, you follow the trajectory of Jesus' death and resurrection, right? If you're part of Jesus, you learn to die to an old part of your life. And you invite the Holy Spirit, this whole filtering process, and say, Lord, when you recognize it, you bring it to God. God, I admit this. I confess this. Will you do your work in me to improve whatever it is, patience, graciousness, Forgiveness in my life. We can't hold back anything from Jesus. If we want to grow, you cannot hold back. You've got to give it all to Jesus. If we do, whether it's a secret sin, right? You can, you can withhold it from people. But God already knows it. So we might as well tell him. And when we tell him, he helps us with that bad attitude of pride. If we do hold back, then your prayers will be blocked. Rather, we have to learn to say goodbye to that old life. Is it a battle? It's a big battle sometimes. But when we do, we enter into this community with God that is sweet, that's in Jesus, that's in the Spirit, that's the fullness of the Spirit. It's a wonderful life. God's kingdom life is living our lives with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we can find that we become truly ourselves, the person God designed us to be. Well, let's just pray for a moment in silence, and then we'll move to communion.
Lord, we admit that as we open your word from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to you. And it points to you because you want us to focus on you. Because you are the meaning of life. You create God's people. In you, we find our home. In you, you are the King and Lord that can be trusted to take us to the very end. Eternal life. In you, we can be changed because you desire us to change. And help us, Lord, to do that. And Lord, as we turn to your table, may it be another reminder that it's about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.